give your Bibles or scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 22. Luke and chapter 22. Jack served us extremely well last week as we looked at the Last Supper passage, and we read a text that is on the heels of that today, 24 through 30 is where we will be in our time together this morning. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, starting in verse 24. Holy Spirit says through a doctor named Luke, a dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater one? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Amen. This is God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. What is greatness? How would you define it? What does it look like? If you were to say, search online for some sort of definition, or a DIY steps on how to be great, I think you'd both find plenty of material And also, very little surprises in the content of those articles and videos. Uh, We also affirm that we are culturally obsessed with greatness. Never-ending debates. Rage about who the greatest are in sports and entertainment. Who is the greatest of all time? The GOAT in this or that sport. Who is the best in music or movies or television? The discussion and debates are endless. Now, on top of that, we're told from a very early age that greatness is what we're supposed to pursue, yes? In virtually every avenue of life, academics, extracurriculars, jobs and careers, business, even our hobbies, we're told we must be great and don't settle for anything less. Is that not what we tell our kids? Who tells their kid, you know, mediocrity is the goal? Right? We tell them they must be great, they must pursue greatness. It's all about greatness of a certain kind in our world, isn't it? And what what does greatness look like? It it looks an awful lot like success, achievement, all fueled by ambition. Tim Keller notes, modern society puts great pressure on individuals to prove their worth through personal achievement. It's not enough to be a good citizen or family member. You must win, be on top, to show you are one of the best. Now, here's another question, okay? Okay. Is it a bad thing or a good thing, this pursuit of greatness? Is the pursuit of greatness a positive or a negative? You know, one of Herman Melville's characters in his work, Moby Dick, said, 
to be, be sure of this young ambition, all mortal greatness is but disease. Is greatness a disease? Keller calls success an idol. That's like a drug. An addiction, like any other kind, it's just more socially acceptable to be addicted to success than to drugs or alcohol. Is he right? I guess what I'm asking is, can one pursue greatness in a proper way? Is there a way to pursue greatness without it destroying your soul? And if so, what does that look like? And what is greatness anyway? We know from our 26-month journey through the Gospel of Luke here at FBC that the king who came into the world is one who brings a kingdom with him, yes? He invites people to join in on what God is doing in the world, yes? And that his kingdom is unlike anything that the world has ever seen, right? We, we, we've seen all those things over and over again in Luke. Meaning what? That things are not what they seem. Human definitions need to be altered. Priorities of people and worldly systems are askew. The kingdom seems to be upside down compared to the world, but really it's the world that's upside down and the kingdom that's right side up. And the text before us reminds us of this once again. Now, as I mentioned, we drop into the text. We remain where we were when we left it last week, which is at the Last Supper. Firmly in Passion Week, Jesus is at the table with his disciples where he has instituted the Lord's Supper and where he's having a last meal with his followers before his death. And where he has declared himself to be the truer and better Passover who will be sacrificed for the sins of the world. Now, all of that doesn't just set the scene for us. It points us to the absurdity of it, of what takes place in verses 24 through 30. Again, Jesus, look at your text, told them in the upper room in verse 15 that he eagerly desired to eat the Passover with them, what? Before he suffered. He told them that his blood would be spilled. He told them his body would be broken for them. He even told them that one of them was going to betray him that very night. So there's no question that the disciples are aware of Jesus' impending suffering and death. Not only has he told them that at the supper, but he's told them many, many times along the way. Now, with all of what I just said in mind, what is it the disciples would like to discuss? Verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them is to be regarded as what? The greatest. They ate supper then they argued about which one of them was the greatest. Should, should I repeat that so we feel the absurdity of it? They ate supper with the Lord, and then they argued which one was the greatest. They ate the supper with the Lord the night before he was to be betrayed and handed over to die, and they disputed about which one of them was the best. Herschel York said that this proves the disciples were Baptist. Because they ate the Lord's Supper together, and then they immediately got into a fight with one another. But in any case, the sheer absurdity of the scene is clear. The Lord is preparing to die, and his followers are busy arguing about which one is the best of all. David Garland said that one cannot think of a more inappropriate time for disciples to bicker over who is the greatest. The absurdity doesn't only point us to how, <clears throat> you know, we tend to wrongly view greatness and pursue it at any cost. It not only reminds us of how our own selfishness and desires 
for glory. Now, does oddly God get comfort from this? Do you get comfort to know that Jesus' first follower, these foundations of the church were just as petty and competitive and self-focused as we are? Like, in other words, Jesus' foundational followers, the first leaders of this new movement, didn't start as courageous men who had it all together and were ready to be killed for their Lord. Instead, they were picked as nobodies from Backwaters Town with no credentials, and they still often missed the point, didn't they? Even after being with Jesus for years, and yet they were still eventually used by Christ in such a way that we could rightly say that you and I are products of their faithfulness. Now, we readers of Luke also can't help but to feel some sort of deja vu. Back in chapter 9, the disciples had this same argument already following the transfiguration. On top of that, Matthew and Mark, the other synoptic gospel authors, record that this debate happened on their way to Jerusalem right before the triumphal entry. So apparently this is a topic that plagued the disciples regularly, one in which Jesus had to continually teach them and correct them about. Again, here is something we can identify with, is it not? Even if we are somewhat put off by the fact that the disciples are arguing about this at quite possibly the worst time, we must be honest and say that we engage in this sort of thing ourselves. Now, look, look in verse 24. You see that word dispute? This is the only place in the New Testament this, word, this Greek word appears. And it means more than arguing. Okay? It means a love of victory or a love of conflict or even a desire for glory. It's not just an argument. It's a, dis, it's a love of dispute that carries with it the idea of comparison with an eye to victory. Are we not prone to do the same sort of thing as well? We're talking about greatness. How can you esteem yourself as great if you don't compare yourself to others? What are you greater than? Societally, we're addicted to comparison and competition. You can't be great unless you're better. And one of the biggest ways in which we engage in this is through social media feeds, is it not? It's on social media where people put their best face forward so they curate an image for themselves that they want you to have of them. And if you buy into this vision of put-together people who mainly have great times to go to dope places and have it all together, then you either feel like you are failing or you feel like you need to do the same thing or better. One of the reasons, do you know this, that teenager depression rates are higher now than they ever have been before is because they log into social media and they see airbrushed people traveling to and fro throughout the land and getting attention and likes and they compare themselves to them. Then if they don't live up to these idealized expectations, they feel like failures. In her book, The Flourishing Teacher, Christina Lake confessed this shockingly honest thing that I think many people feel but don't want to say. She said, I admit that I have felt very strong envy before. I have said some pretty bad things about scholars my age or younger who seem so quickly and easily to gain the larger audience that I want but can't seem to find. These scholars write about the same issues I've been thinking and writing about for years, but they have gained the lucrative speaking engagements. They sell more than a few copies of books, and their names are known. Listen to this last line. Even as I write these words now, I could feel my bones rotting. 
can't relate. This is why playing the comparison game, listen, is antithetical to the gospel. It's graceless. Comparison is incompatible with grace because it is in comparisons that we tie people's worth in what they do. Do you see? We tie our worth into what we could do or accomplish or be seen by others doing. And in such case, what what room is there for grace? That's all merit. And if our value is tied to what we do, where does grace come in? In the disciples' dispute over who is the greatest, they inevitably must make some comparisons because if one is the greatest, then the others are what? (laughs) Not. And on what basis are they the greatest? It must be because of something they accomplished, or at the very least, because the others are deficient in some ways. Is that not how we make comparisons? And again, we always sit in judgment of the disciples because of the manner and the timing at which they're having this debate. But let's just be really honest. We have been culturally conditioned to think greatness in the way that the world does. And that directly correlates to a graceless posture that compares ourselves to others. Which either makes us feel puffed up when we think we're better, or it leads to self-pity when we think we aren't so great. The disciples need to rethink what greatness is, and so do we. And Jesus helps us with this as he interjects in verse 25. So you see what Jesus does in verse 25 and through 30? He doesn't join the conversation and say, Let me just settle this debate. I'll tell you which one is the greatest. Instead, he says, in essence, you are not even thinking rightly about what greatness is. You need to change the way in which you understand greatness itself. Now, notice what he does. To To help us think, to them and us think rightly about greatness, Jesus offers them a negative example then a positive example, and then an encouragement. Is that not the flow of the rest of the passage? So let, that'll, that'll be what drives the rest of our time together, all right? The negative example is this, the way in which the world thinks of greatness. Greatness, according to the world, is found in what? Power, influence, position, and means. Greatness is found in not only being the best, It's not enough to just be the best. You know this, right? Other people have to know it, don't they? In the ethic of the world, greatness cannot be found in anonymity. People need to know what you've done and who you are. Greatness in the world is about being recognized and impressive. Therefore, it will fundamentally shape how you relate to and see people. Not only in what we've already talked about in terms of comparison, where you value people based on their accomplishments, but in whether or not there's someone who could benefit you. In the way of the world, either people, you tell me after the sermon if you think I'm wrong, but I'm not, okay? In the way of the world, either people are your competition, or they are someone who could be used for your benefit. And if they don't fit either of those categories, then you have no use for them. That's the way of the world. Is that not the ethic of the world? If we're thinking of greatness in a way the world thinks of greatness, then either people are competitors we need to defeat, or else they are people who need to be glad-handed because they could benefit us in the long run. See, in that paradigm, paradigm, what space is there for those on the margins of society? 
What time does one have for the least and the last, for the vulnerable and weak who have no credentials and could do nothing to benefit you? What room is there? There's none. Not when you think of greatness in the way that the world does. You know, maybe this is one of the reasons why the religious leaders hated Jesus so much. Who do you hang out with again? Notorious for so-called sinners. Sick, lame, blind, lonely, outcasts, fringes of society. You know, maybe the religious leaders thought, He shouldn't be wasting his time with the lowly because he should be hanging out with us, right, to get our approval, to grow his crowd, to get our sanction, to benefit from our influence. That's not what Jesus did, was it? And that was strange to them. You know, the insidiousness of this is that we could even want greatness according to the world, procured in the way that the world does, and believe our motivation is to benefit the kingdom. Should I say that again? We can, this is the seriousness of it. We can want greatness according to the world, procured in the way the world procures it, and say our motivation is for the kingdom. After all, the more influence we have, the more we can make a big impact for God, right? Pastors want a big platform. Why? Because the more people hear them, the more people will get the gospel. That's what we tell ourselves. Churches who make decisions based on who gives the most money do so because the more money they have, the greater impact they have on the community, they say. No one thinks influence is a bad thing, right? If greatness is going to be pursued, better it be pursued for the kingdom than anything else, right? That the motives might be right to begin with, but it rarely ends well. And why? Because greatness in the kingdom cannot be pursued, defined, or procured using the methods of a world that defines greatness in a way that Christ rebukes. You think of Gandalf the Grey? You know Gandalf the Grey, right? Big, I know you guys are big Lord of the Rings aficionados. Gandalf the Grey, even if you don't know much about Lord of the Rings, he is one of the best examples of virtue in all of fiction. Even he was tempted with the ring of power because he considered how much good he could have done with it. After all, it would be better in the hands, his hands, right, than in the hands of people who are up to no good. But is that how it would have really turned out? You know, Tolkien actually addressed this later on when he said Gandalf, as ring lord, would have been far worse than Sauron. He would have remained righteous but self-righteous. We need to understand that the fallenness of all of our hearts, do you believe your heart is fallen, by the way? Is so profound. And it runs so deep that we need to constantly ask ourselves, why am I doing this? Even good things need to be prodded. Am I doing this for God or for me? Am I trying to be something? Because we can pursue things for the kingdom and still in the back of our minds think, and if I become something at the same time, I'm, I'm not going to fight it, right? Better me than someone else. Think about what Jesus says here about benefactors. You see that word benefactor? That's not a word we typically use, especially not in the sense that Jesus meant it in this context. Benefactors, in this context, they could be well-known people like government officials, or they could be people who started as nobodies and like rose to power and influence. They could be on higher low levels. They were people who sought influence and celebrated themselves. They were people who would help you out of a bind, but you would be in their debt. 
they would donate buildings and sponsor events, but were sure you knew who was giving the money. They were generous, but they never gave anonymously. They would aid you, but they would remind you, you owe me one. Or when they wanted something later, they would say, remember when I? See, for our benefactors, there's no such thing as giving with no strings attached. There was no such thing as serving for the sake of serving. There was no such thing as doing something that didn't benefit them in the long run. You know, in 1936, Dale Carnegie published a book I bet you've heard before, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It has sold over 30 million copies, okay? And it continues to be read a lot today. You know, much of it is about giving, the book. Whether you want friends or money, he assures the reader that showing interest in people and giving them presents will get you there. To make a lot of money, you have to start by offering presents. Then you can charge a lot later. The interest in others may be sincere, and he insisted that it is gifts you should give, not loans or bribes, but what's the goal? Your own gain. Miroslav Volf says this about the book. It harnesses the power of gifts for the purposes contrary to the nature of the gift. By definition, gifts benefit others. Yet Carnegie tells us to give in order to benefit ourselves. If we take a closer look at our giving, we'll probably be surprised at how many of our gifts are given to ourselves. We need friends in high places, so we invite them over to dinner or do them a favor. We want a car repaired speedily, so we bring a bottle of scotch to our local mechanic. We hope to quiet the legitimate ire of our spouse after we've committed a small transgression, so we bring flowers or jewelry. Such gifts are investments, and like all investments, we expect them to deliver returns. The bigger, the better. See, Carnegie's approach is not surprising, nor is the fact that people have bought it in droves and followed what it says. And why is it not surprising? Because it's simply the ethic of the world. And it is the ethic of the world that Jesus is talking about here, and he's also rebuking. The way our fallen world works is that our relationships are defined by reciprocity. Yes? An exchange of goods and services. Therefore, no one gives to give. They give to get. They give to call in a favor. They give so they can be seen as generous or philanthropists. They give so that others will approve of them and accept them. This is just the cutthroat nature of the world, we say. Now, Volf offers another illustration by way of Joseph Conrad's book, Heart of Darkness. You know this book? The imperialists in the novel saw themselves as legitimate getters and beneficent givers. They, they liked to believe that they traded fairly with the indigenous people, and as a bonus, they brought the light of civilization and the darkness of their barbarity, right? Yet in reality, they were shameless takers who extracted goods and destroyed cultures in order to replace them with their own. Now, this is what I want you to key in on. Volf says, you know, most of us are neither self-righteous imperialists nor self-confessedly evil imitators of the sinister Mr. Kurtz from the novel, right? Yet to the extent that we are sinners, similar impulses that govern him rule in us, each one of us can make a journey to the heart of darkness. If we, aren't, if we weren't capable of this sort of benefactor-type pursuit of greatness, then this warning from Jesus was pointless. Isn't it? What do you say? Okay. Who's he giving the warning to? Is it not his hand-picked disciples hours before his betrayal and trial? These guys did ministry with Jesus day in and day out. They heard more teachings from the mouth of Jesus than we will in a thousand lifetimes. On top of that, he's already covered this topic on multiple occasions, and yet he still feels the need to warn them of this worldly 
ethic. So if they need the warning, don't we too? If any of us think we aren't in danger of falling into the ethic of the world in terms of influence, stature, and greatness, then we're just deceiving ourselves. Why? Not only because our hearts are fallen, but because we're constantly inundated with the messages of the world. Are we not? We're told that greatness is what greatness is as defined by the world at every turn. And let me ask you this, as that's happening to you, are you counteracting those calls to worldly greatness and worldly influence and worldly means of winning and achieving with the Word of God? They were the reminders of where our true identity and value comes from. Richard Lovelace said that when men's hearts are not full of God, they become full of the world around like a sponge full of clean water that has been squeezed empty and thrown into a mud puddle. Are our hearts full of the dirty mud of the ethics of a fallen world and the advice and example of people who give no allegiance to Jesus at all? You know, we, we think of our lack of daily Bible intake and our lack of daily prayer and our lack of attendance at the gatherings of the church as no big deal. But when all those habits become less frequent, the influences of the world grow louder and louder. Jesus is warning us, friends. He's saying loudly and clearly, this is the bad example of what greatness looks like. Greatness, influence, power, according to the world, is the wrong way. Self-promotion and service done for oneself is the wrong approach. It's counter-kingdom. Look again at verse 26. You want to mark this. Not so with you. You are not to be like that. You know, do you see what he did? He holds up the way of the world, doesn't he? And says, as plain as day, do you see this example? You see the way the world approaches greatness. You are not to be like them. Literally, this is what it says. You are not like that. Which means that as a follower of Christ, you already shouldn't be like that. And as a follower of Christ, you are being commanded to not be like that. Jesus is saying here that the disciples need a change in perspective. The way of the world that they are used to, that makes sense to them. This is to be replaced with a new ethic, his ethic. Jesus does what his normal practice is, right? He subverts and overturns the normal expectations of the world, this time in terms of how we view greatness. He overturns the typical estimation of social realities. You see what he does in verse 27? He asks a question, doesn't he? With an example, who is greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? This is one of those questions that seemed like uh, it has a really obvious answer. If you saw, you picture it, someone reclining at a table, like they used to do, resting one elbow while eating fine foods with the other hand, and you saw a second person, and they were waiting on the person reclining, who would you conclude was the greater between them? I mean, could there be a more obvious answer than this? You know, when I was a kid, there was a show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, hosted by Robin Leach. You guys remember this show? And later, there was one that I just found out yesterday was still on TV for some reason called MTV Cribs. You guys remember that one? Well, both those shows had the same premise, right? A tour of a rich person's house or a famous person's house, their obscene mansion or their vacation spot or their yacht, whatever. Okay. By the way, is there anything more American than this? 
us poor plebes like hunched over our TV dinners, tuning in so we can see how wealthy people live. And you know, we get this virtual tour of their indoor basketball courts and their bowling alleys. You know, they had an Olympic-sized pool just for their dog. Their chandeliers cost more than our houses. And we'd think, wow, if only I lived like that. If only I had what they had. You know what we never, ever thought? We didn't see the butlers and the maids in the background and go, if only I could be like them. Now there's the really sweet gig. You know, Jesus asked this question of the two people side by side. One a reclining patron and one a lonely servant. And then he asked who is greater. The answer 100 out of 100 times would be the same. Everyone would answer that the one who is greater is the one being waited on, not the one doing the waiting. There's no controversy here. It's, it's so obvious, isn't it? Everyone would answer the same way. Two people, one lounging, one and being served, the other standing and serving. Who's the greater? And you know, we know, you and I know what Jesus is about to say. And we want to say, well, it's the person serving who's greater. But do we really think that? Honestly. If you saw a picture of someone in a palatial mansion being waited on by a servant who poured them a drink and took their shoes off for them and then went and scrubbed a toilet and you were asked who was greater, you absolutely would not say the one doing the menial task. But Jesus would. See, we need to let the scandal sink into our bones because who among us really, truly, honestly has this ethic of Jesus's? Really? That the one who serves is greater than the one being served. Who? Who among us would rather be serving in the menial, mundane, uncelebrated, unregarded areas than being served and celebrated by others? Jesus says we need to flip our definitions of greatness on their head. For the disciple, there's no other way. There's no other way. Jesus doesn't give us the option of living by the standards of greatness that the world has while holding in tension greatness as defined by him in the kingdom. You have to choose. So what's the positive example? Well, we have our negative one in verse 25. So what's the good one? It's verse 26. The greatest acting like the youngest and like a servant. Well, what does it mean to act like the youngest? Well, it's basically the same picture that we saw in chapter 9 when the topic came up last time in Luke. You remember what happened? Disciples are arguing, right? Who's the greatest? Jesus lifts up a child. Remember? That's an object lesson saying you have to be like this child if you're going to be great in the kingdom. See, let me remind you, children in this context were not celebrated like we celebrate them. We celebrate kids, yes? We set our lives around them. We pay all kinds of attention to them. Children in this context were not seen like that at all. They were not seen as valuable until they were old enough to contribute to society. The virtues of children were not extolled like we extol them. Children were at the bottom of the societal ladder and viewed as relatively insignificant. Children were to be neither seen nor heard. They got last place, not first. They were unseen and unregarded. They were given the most menial, servile tasks. They weren't noted for that service either. No one celebrated that they did the mundane task. They just did it. It was expected. What is Jesus saying? Be like that. You want to be great? Serve. And serve often and serve even if no one sees you and serve in the menial and the mundane and serve for the sake of service. See, if we were to consider again Carnegie's make friends and influence people idea, 
service would still be okay, right? But, but you serve so that people could see you serve and be impressed by humility and praise you for your deeds. So again, that kind of service is self-serving, you see? <laughs> Even if it's done for others, because in the end, you still get some kind of benefit. Jesus says to serve for the sake of it. This is a, a total other-oriented service. No thought of recompense. No thought of a claim, no desire for an attaboy, or isn't she so humble? Service for Christ's sake, that's greatness, says the Lord. And it is service for people who could do nothing for you. See, what better way to not seek a return on your service than to serve people who couldn't repay you if they wanted to? Well, who in the world does that? You know, Charles Spurgeon said on this text, if you are, if we are to imitate Christ, it will involve, dear friends, that we who are saved by him should joyfully undertake the very lowest service. If there is a door to be kept, if there is a path to be swept, let us aspire to that dignity. If there is a class of men more degraded than other, other, another, let us wish to go to them. If there is a rank of women who more fallen than another, let us pray and labor, especially for them. If there is a person who really is so exceedingly poor and perhaps so very dirty that it takes a good deal of self-denial to go sit by her bedside when she is sick, let us go. If we are to be like Christ, we shall all be eager for the lowest work we shall all be seeking, which can take the lowest place. This is the sort of self-denial Jesus calls for, isn't it? Greatness is found in uncelebrated service with no thought of repayment. It's found in the menial, the lowly, the kind of service that people might never even see or know about. And that's just fine because the only one who matters will see it and his approval is enough for you. Greatness is service at the behest of the master. It is denying oneself and seeing greatness in a different way because our hearts and our wills are subjugated to Christ. The radical nature of this is that the world seeks first place, and the disciples seeks what? Last. The world seeks influence, the disciple seeks anonymity. The world is out for self, the disciple is out for the good of only others. The world seeks glory for itself, the disciple seeks for glory to God alone. Spurgeon said once more, a true servant ignores his own will. He does not do what he would like to do. He does what his master tells him to do. He is engaged as a servant, and he lives as a servant and obeys the will of him who has employed him. Was it not just so with our Lord in the whole course of his life? I came not, he said, to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. So it should be for us, says Jesus. You know who we should be like? Alfred Pennyworth. You know him? He's Batman's butler. Shame on you if you didn't know that, by the way. There's a book called Batman and Philosophy that I read. And the author says this about Alfred's service, okay? He says, taking no part in the notoriety of Bruce Wayne or Batman, Alfred certainly doesn't do it for fame. Rather, we're astounded at his humility, for although Alfred is surely aware of the vital role he plays in the Dark Knight's foyers, he asks for no praise. Instead, he remains so humble now, on the same day that he changes the tire on the Batmobile, program Wayne Manor's security system, and reinvents Batman's utility belt, he'll happily clean toilets as if there were no difference between the tasks. But then the author says that where Batman 
shows justice as law and peace and fair institutions. Alfred shows us justice of love and devotion. See? And this kind of justice is inherently unfair because there's never a guarantee that this kind of deed will be reciprocated. That's the kind of love and service that is great in the kingdom of Christ. It's the kind that serves for the sake of service and never looks at a task as beneath them and never desires recognition for deed done because they know that the Father who sees in secret will reward them openly. Have you ever, just be honest, in your heart, okay, seen a task as beneath you? I bet you have. And that's where we miss the kingdom ethic. Have you ever done a task and wondered why nobody recognized you for it? I bet you have. And that's counter to the kingdom ethic. Don't you see? It's the posture of actively desiring last place. And can there be a more opposite ethic from the world than this? My friend, is that your ethic? What are you seeking? First or last place? I want you to notice what I'm asking, okay? Are you seeking last place? Are you actively striving toward last place? Notice how I did not phrase this. Not if I get last place, it's okay. It's have you set out to be last place and servant of all? Has your ethic been wrecked by Jesus to the point that you consider greatness to be more in the menial than in the impressive? Are you someone who is intentional about serving others in a way that the world would not applaud? We're talking greatness, right? But I said at the beginning that you could go and Google and read and find articles and videos telling you how to be great, right? All of them say you have to set out to be great. That greatness doesn't just come You have to be intentional. So let's carry that logic to Jesus' definition of greatness. That means that you are still pursuing greatness, right? Yes? No one said don't pursue greatness. I never said don't pursue greatness, did I? No one said don't try to be great. I never said that. But what I am saying, and more importantly what Jesus is saying, is pursue greatness, yes, as long as it looks like his definition of it. You still need to pursue greatness. You still need to be intentional about it. But what it looks like is self-denying, unheralded, emptying of oneself for the sake of others in the kingdom of Christ. Are you prepared to do that? Do you need more motivation for this sort of greatness? Read the last part of verse 27. I am among you as the one who serves. Let's get really uncomfortable. You want to? If we are unwilling to serve the way Jesus is calling us to, then we are asserting that we deserve better than Jesus. Is he not setting himself as the example of greatness? Isn't he? And isn't he holding that up in the middle of his last supper? And isn't he going to a cross for the sins of undeserving rebels and sinners? And isn't he one who serves? And isn't he even so the Lord of glory? Right in that Gospel Coalition, Christina Fox said this, Service makes us uncomfortable and empties us of pride and self-exaltation. For this reluctant servant, I had to face the truth that when my heart refuses to serve the body, I am in some way mocking the service of Christ himself. 
When I say a task isn't appropriate for me to do, I'm saying that I am better than my master. And when I limit my service for the sake of the kingdom to only what makes me comfortable, I am saying that Christ and his body just isn't worth the effort. A few of us would put that in such dark terms. But isn't the Lord getting at the same conclusion? If the world sees greatness in one way, and he's holding greatness up in another way, and if he is greatest of all, and he is great through service, even though he's the king of all things, then what are we saying when we refuse to serve? What are we saying when we think some task is beneath us? What are we saying when we want any other place besides last? What are we saying when we see servant task and hope someone else will take care of it? The call from Jesus is clear. Be like him. What does Philippians 2 say? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition sounds like the world's idea of greatness, doesn't it? But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one not only look at his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Can we pause there for a second? Do any of us, with all of our credentials and accomplishments, have credentials like that? Equality with God? Who, though in the form of a God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's what greatness looks like. And that picture of the king of glory, condescending and pouring himself out to suffer a gruesome death for sinners, should be invited to destroy our earthly categories and assault our hearts to where we never see greatness the same again. To where we change our definitions and our pursuits to where we long to be emptied out for so glorious a king, to where we cannot see any act of service as beneath us, to where there is nothing that Jesus can ask of us that is off the table. Is Jesus worth our casting off the definitions of greatness that the world floods our consciences with in order to replace it with the greatness that looks otherworldly? Is he worth it? 19th century pastor Alexander McLaren said it this way, in love that seeks to copy lies the only power that will cast out self from his usurped seat in our hearts and will throne Jesus Christ there. It needs a mighty lever to heave a planet from its orbit and to set it circling around another sun, and there is nothing that will deliver any man in any rank of life from the dominion of self except submission to the dominion of him who, because he died to serve, deserves and has won the supreme right of authority and dominion over human life. He says to use anything for self is to miss its highest goodness and to mar ourselves. To use anything for Christ and our brethren is to find the sweetest sweetness and to bless ourselves to the very utmost. Self-absorption is self-destruction. Self-surrender is self-acquisition. But Jesus doesn't just offer motivation in his own example, his own work, but what lies ahead for the disciple that endures. You see, Jesus promises in verses 28 through 30, he promises vindication and a seat at the table in the age to come. The Lord tells them that they have been faithful thus far. He encourages them. You've endured hardship throughout my ministry to this point. And, he is, he, and what he is promising is that if they continue to endure and adopt this servant posture, they will be eventually rewarded. See, they want glory now 
by bypassing suffering. They want to be elevated now. They want the best seats right away. But Jesus tells them that glory and reward only come by sharing in Jesus' suffering. That's sort of the deal, right? You guys know this. If you want glory and power and influence in this world, if you want greatness according to the definition of fallen people, you can have it. But that glory will be confined to this age only. Why? Because those who want greatness now and in the way of the world, they will not endure when faced with hardship and struggles for the kingdom. They will bail because they think they deserve better than they're getting. Because James Edwards says, shallow faith, like seed on rock, receives the gospel gladly but forsakes it in times of trials. Those who receive the gospel solely for its benefit will abound in it for its cost. Those who define greatness according to the kingdom ethic, however, they expect hardship, and so they endure. Why? Because they see glory and reward in having Jesus, not in having the world's acclaim. You know, there's a fantastical story about Thomas Aquinas that says that as he was finishing his seminal work, he was in a chapel kneeling before a crucifix, and as he was weeping, he thought he heard Jesus say from the cross, you have written well of me, Thomas. What reward will you receive from me for your labor? Seeing the Lord depicted as beaten and bruised, scourged and pierced as he was on the place of the skull, Thomas responded simply, nothing but you, Lord. And from that moment until his death, he left his work unfinished. What the world considered his greatest achievement, he considered as nothing in light of Christ. His reward was Christ and Christ alone. Is he enough reward for you, my friend? We mentioned, talking about comparisons, that they're graceless, didn't we? And why? Because our worth and the worth of others is therefore found in what can be done and what can be earned and what can be accomplished. So if we approach life the way Jesus is advocating here of selfless and menial sacrifice and service, then we must shed our idea that our approval comes from what we do. We could do the unheralded and the looked down upon because our worth comes from Christ's declaration that we are already approved in him because of his deeds and not ours. Don't you see? There's freedom to not care what anyone thinks because we're fueled by the grace given by Christ alone who saves, sustains, and vindicates. You have already been declared valuable, so you don't have to live by the applause or frowns of people. You already have a smile, so what use of you have the smile of others? Jesus not only promises those who pursue greatness through servanthood, vindication in the end, but he invites them to share in what he's doing in the world. He's telling his disciples here that if they continue to endure and they emulate his example of selfless service, they'll be doing his will, and doing his will means they will reach the world with the gospel. His mission becomes their mission. His will becomes their will. They get to share in the responsibility of his rule. Is that not a greater honor than all the riches and acclaim and prestige and power in the whole world? Listen to what Del Ralph Davis said. He said, since gift, privilege, and position will all be theirs, why do they need to keep jockeying to be the top dog at the present moment? Jesus gives all they could long for, so why go on making such a ruckus over their status now? Same is true for you, my friend. Whatever you have been thinking for the last hour that you might lose, if you adopted Jesus' ethic, it's nothing compared to what you gain in the person of Christ. 
It's not going to compare to what he has awaiting for you in the age to come. All the honor and power and money in the world is a pile of dung compared to knowing Jesus and being involved in his mission to bring lost sinners into his family. You know, I opened with three questions. What is greatness? How would you define it? What does it look like? Can we answer now? What is greatness? Being last. How would you define it? Selfless service. What does it look like? Jesus. You want greatness? Good. Strive to have the same attitude of Christ Jesus. Give up status, go to cross, rest in his seal of approval. Let's all make the old Puritan prayer ours when it says, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision.